When a murderer gets close, it's 1963, winter and snowing lightly, and my mom's in a parking lot in her car. It's an industrial parking lot where her husband's uncle's trucking company is located. It was once the largest trucking company in New England, and my dad worked there as a mechanic and eventually a truck driver. My mom's mom works nearby at a dental supply company in that same industrial area right off a major highway in Manchester, New Hampshire, and off Brown Avenue. The airport is nearby. It's a hub of industry, buzzing with the thrill of the early 1960s. My mom hasn't been married long, hasn't been out of high school long, and though she has two babies, my much older brother and sister, she feels hopeful still. She's smart. She hasn't gone to college yet, but she would have, maybe, if babies and love hadn't gotten in the way. But she's smart enough to know that when a man knocks on her car window, she needs to think fast, really fast. That day, my mom met a murderer and almost became embroiled in case law that would dictate how officers throughout the United States dealt with search and seizure laws. This is a story of the murderer my mom met. So, hi. Hey. Let's take you all a little bit deeper. Sean's here now. Yeah, looking to go deep, baby. That was so inappropriate. What? You know that was so inappropriate. <laughs> all right. Especially since like my next words are about my mom. All right. But my mom was the middle child of a strong and brilliant woman named Rena Morse. Rena was tall, hovering around 5'11", which if you met me would make no sense. And for most of her life, she topped out at about 110, 115 pounds. She was the valedictorian of her tiny high school class in Ware, New Hampshire. She wrote poems and worked really hard on the family farm and in the classroom. She ended up going to business course for women, which for our family and our economic class was a big thing back then. And she married a man who probably topped out at 5'5 five, five and 135 pounds. I'm just adding this in for color because I find it so funny when I imagine them together, mm -hmm. which I never got to see because he was a jazz drummer and a really funny guy and he toured with big bands all over the country and they had three kids before he went on tour fell in love, and did not come back. Oh, no. Yeah, that's why I never he saw him. fell in love with somebody else? Yeah, she was super nice. My mom loved her, but yeah, uh, he definitely... Your mom loves her. My <laughs> mom loved her. Um, that's because your mom didn't like your grandmother. <laughs> no, my mom didn't like her own mom. They had a lot of arguments. but And my mom was tiny. My mom was like 5'1", but she pretended to be 5'2". Of course she, she did. She liked that ancient song, five foot two, your eyes are blue. I don't know that. Gucci, 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 Gucci. What's this podcast about? It's about bad songs. <laughs> All right, so 
Anyways, my mom's oldest brother, he followed in my Nana's footsteps. He was the brilliant valedictorian of his much larger high school in Manchester, New Hampshire, and then at his class at University of New Hampshire. He taught himself Korean and an organ and he, anything he wanted to learn. And he headed to Harvard Law and he did something potentially secretive in the Korean War. And he became an incredibly successful lawyer in New Hampshire, ending up chairing the board at UNH and running for governor. Like every other person who tries politics in my family, he lost. <laughs> so my mom, she was probably just as smart as her older brother, but she got derailed by babies and what some would call bad choices. But she was savvy and funny and always smiling. But one of the things that she had that you have, Shawnee, is that she noticed everything about everyone. Yeah. She was very situationally aware. But more than that, she had brilliant facial recognition. She could tell you things people said years later, which is why she often held a grudge with my Nana. <laughs> um, but like she was so, so smart. Um, but she didn't notice this man in the parking lot until he was right at her car. Mm -hmm. And that was not normal for my mom, right? Yep. So... We're going to back it up a little bit. Ready? Okay. All right. So this is really not the story of my mother, but my mother's this tiny part of the story. It's really the story of two other women in Manchester, New Hampshire area. And their names were Pamela Mason and Sandra Velady. I don't know how to say that, even though like I'm that from there. Velady. I don't know. Whoa. That one's Velady. Oh. Oh, damn it. Okay, so <laughs> let's go in chronological order. And we're going to start with Sandra, right? Okay. And thank you thank you for singing, Sean. So You're I welcome. didn't sing alone on the podcast. So four years before Pamela Mason's death. Oh, now we know Pamela dies already? Yes, yeah, spoiler alert. Ready? Yes. Sandra Velotti was went missing. She went missing during a snowstorm in Hooksit, New Hampshire. Hooksit is right next to Manchester, right? Yep. Which is where my mom was. So Sandra was only 18, and she worked in one of Manchester's many, many factories at the time as a coil winder and as a secretary. So it's February 1st, 1960. She's done with the factory for the day, but she stays really busy. And she, she's just that kind of person. She's yeah, like, I'm yeah. done, but I'm not going straight home kind well, of Well, there's no Netflix or internet or anything. So. There was no Hulu or TikTok in 1960. How did they survive? They went to the library. Okay, so she goes to the library. <laughs> and then she goes to the YMCA. And though it's cold, really cold, in February, she is tough. And she takes a swim class, which to me, living up here... Is like the worst when you go to the Y and go swimming, and then you have to go out and go to your car or right. somewhere. Oh, yeah, but yeah, she doesn't yeah. have a car, she's not like a busing kind of person, right? And so, after that, she goes to a movie, and once the movie's over, she goes on a bus and heads home. Hopefully, her hair's dry. Um, because she still lives her, with her parents, right? Yes, the bus drops her off at 9 14 p.m., and she walks home the rest of the mile, right? Yeah, but she doesn't. What her she got a ride? We don't know. Her coat, her wallet, her bag, and one boot are found in a, lo a canal nearby. Mm -hmm. But she's not there. They don't find her body there. Nine days go by. 
and then they find her body in a snowbank. No way. Yeah. And she was raped. How'd she get from the river to the snowbank? Well, somebody took her from the river to the <laughs> snowbank because she was raped and murdered. Oof. Yeah. And all the items that she'd had on her were taken and spread around town, according wow. to some of the news reports. She was shot four times in the head and stabbed four times, and the gun was a twenty-two caliber. And even though, like, the entire town is really upset because this young woman just, you know, got abducted and right. killed and raped, which is so horrifying for this person who obviously was so full of life and energy. Apparently. I mean, she goes to the library and goes to the Y and goes to a movie. Like, Anybody goes to the Y in February, no matter what they're doing. It's yeah, cool like, she life. sounds amazing just from that fact to me. I'm like, Wow. That's an extrovert I need to be friends with, basically, <laughs> like to get me out of my own shell. And so people are very upset. And they eventually, despite 2,000 tips and 700 suspects and a bunch of interviews and one confession from a guy who said he used a 45, which made them know it wasn't that guy, Right. they have no leads. Gotcha. Like nothing. So. Moving forward four years, and then something terrible happens to Pamela Jean Mason. But Pamela's not 18. She's only 14. Holy crap. She's just a baby. And she's an honor student, and she wants to make a little bit of extra money, right? She's this adorable 14-year-old kid with big high hair off her crown of her head and monster dimples. Um, right? And because there are child labor laws, Pamela can't get in a job in like a mill or anything, and there's a million of them lining in the Merrimack River. These big foreboding brick places, like yeah. with windows that look like eyes. I grew up there, so I know the scariness of the mills. Okay. Um. So she goes to the laundromat, like a local automatic laundromat, yeah. and posts something on its bulletin board. Um. And that something that she posts, it says she's a babysitter. Do you need one? Give her a call. So that post changed her life, unfortunately. On January 13th, 1964, a man calls her house and asks if Pamela could babysit for him. Her mother, who's a little overprotective, says, yeah, but only if your wife is there too and you both come to get her. Mm -hmm. um, so he leaves his phone number and his address and Pamela's meant to sit for them from six to nine. So Pamela's mom has to go to work herself because she's a waitress at a local inn. Yeah. And she tells her 11-year-old son to walk Pamela out to the car. So okay. six o'clock comes, someone honks outside, Pamela and her little brother walk out, but a neighbor asks David, her little brother, to do something. So he runs off without seeing who's in the car. What? Yeah. So, but that's very 11-year-old boy. Yeah, like, you can't yeah. really fault him. Plus, you know, it's your sister. Your mom's asking you to do it. Right. Right. So someone comes, obviously has come to the house, and Pamela gets in the car, and she has her school book books with her because she's an honor student and she wants to get some studying done. But Pamela never comes back. Her dad gets home from work, right? Yeah. A little bit after six. Um, and she's only supposed to be there till nine. And he calls the number that is left by their telephone on a notepad, right? Um, when she doesn't show up at nine. And it belongs to an elderly couple. And they're like, no, we, we didn't call for a babysitter. We have no young children. And the address 
they're he's like is this your address and they're like yeah that's definitely our address and he's like totally freaked out so he walks to their house like snow is trundling down because it's a big snowstorm that's okay. night and there's 12 inches i think of snow wow. that happens and he gets there this poor distraught dad and he sees this couple and they're definitely definitely elderly and they definitely don't have any kids and they definitely did not hire pamela so just a little after nine they call the police and they tell them that you know our daughter didn't come back she has brown hair and brown eyes she was wearing a white blouse and a sweater and green stretch pants and a coat with a hood and bobby socks and boots for the snow and she they tell her again has her books for school and a green purse and a pink wallet which just sounds so cute honestly mm -hmm. all that pink and green like a little <laughs> before the 80s so the police and the national guard are both like we're gonna go find this kid and they look through the snow and they search through the woods and throughout the whole city of manchester and it's basically all the same places that they looked when sandra went missing and Pamela's poor dad makes his public plea. He goes, whoever you are, for God's sake, don't harm my baby. Let her come home to me. I have no money, but if you want money, I'll get it somewhere, even though I have to mortgage my life. So this is a desperate, broken, terrified family, right? Mm -hmm. And so four days later, like a, I think a bakery truck driver on Route 93, which is a major highway in that area, notices some stuff on the side of the road, but he doesn't stop. And the next day, he's like, yeah, that stuff's still there. And he stops. And there's a green purse and school books and papers in a melting snowbank. And it just caught his eye. Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of what happened when they found Sandra, too. Something caught someone's eye in a right. snowbank. And they're like, oh. And they found her. Um, but then when he stopped, he sees something else and, it, and it's Pamela and she's in that snowbank and her shirt's half on her bra, her underwear gone and her body is found two miles away from where Sandra's body had been found before a few years before. Right. Um, it was a snowbank again by route 93. And the police and the medical examiner, they both call it an identical murder. Right. They're like, she was raped. Someone killed her with a twenty-two caliber gun. Mm -hmm. They take her body to the hospital. And um, uh, the Air Force has this melting machine, <laughs> I guess, is what the newspaper accounts say. And it melts the rest of the snowbank. And when they do that, they find a man's left-hand dress glove, tan and soiled, right there. So they're like, probably evidence. So the hospital says, yes, she was stabbed four times. She was shot twice in the head. And then, you know, Manchester, the whole area got kind of freaked out. Everyone thought that, like, quote, according to Manchester cop David Lord, a nut was on the loose. <laughs> uh, 1960s, right? So people, I'm like, what kind of nut? Was it a cashew? Was it right. an academia? Um, so the police were sure that it was the same person who killed both these girls and that he was someone on the west side of Manchester. And Pamela went to high school on the west side. She went to my high school, which is brilliantly called West. Oh. Yeah, there's also a central simplistic i know um so <laughs> there it's manchester for you um so basically everyone's like who the hell is this guy and the police start questioning people 
if they have a 22. And they did that for Sandra's um, death as well. They, like, I guess they just asked people to come in if they had mm -hmm. a 22 or if you know someone. And there were so few 22s back then. I can't imagine there were. That they could interview? It was super popular back then. I don't know. So, um, Edward Coolidge is a guy, um, and he has a 22, and he'd been questioned before when Sandra died. Um, so he actually offers for the police to test his guns and check his car as a 1951 Pontiac and a 1962 Chevy. And he tells them where he was on at 6 on January 13th. And uh, he's 27 years old, right? He drives a bakery truck for a living. And he used to be an all-state high school football star, this guy. So the thing is that on January 13th, Edward got his car stuck in a snowbank. Yeah. On the highway. Uh -huh. And it's the same night that Pamela disappeared. And so a couple are like, yeah, he did. He got his car stuck in, a, in the snowbank and we tried to help him get it out. Um, and one report says that they did help him. And another newspaper report says he refused their help. So I'm not sure which is true there because they're contrary reporters. Right reports and that seems like a basic fact but whatever um but these people said it wasn't at the time of night that edward said and they're like yeah and he said it was down here on the highway farther away from where pamela's body was found but it was actually a lot closer to where pamela's body was found um so the police search his car, and there's a 22 caliber Mossberg rifle in there. Yeah. There's gunpowder particles, and that rifle, according to the testing, is the one that shot Pamela. So then the police search his home, and there are clothes there that have evidence that show those clothes touched Pamela, and her hair is on some. And then the thing is that his mom owns the laundromat. So he definitely knows that you can find girls babysitting who put up the ads on laundry mats right uh -huh. so on february 19th edward's arrested for stealing 300 dollars from his employer and he's released on bail when he's released he goes to work in his mother's laundry and he's playing a board game with his wife joan and charged with killing pamela that evening <laughs> so Obviously, you know, her hair is on his clothes, the gunpowder is on her clothes, the same as that in the car and on his clothes, and his alibis didn't hold up. So during the trial, it took the jury about four hours and 15 minutes to convict him. The trial lasted five weeks. And when the picture of him, this white guy with a receding hairline and a bump in his nose and puffy cheeks shows up in the Manchester Union Leader, my mom drops it on the counter and she flashes back to the man talking to her when she parked her car. And she picks up the phone, not to call the police, but to call her big brother, who she loves and respects so much, and ask him the for lawyer, advice. Right? Yeah, because he's a lawyer, <laughs> yeah. too. And he goes, wait, don't do anything. Let me make some calls. So whatever calls my uncle makes convinces him to tell my mom to not talk to the police officially. He thinks that Mr. Coolidge is unstable. And then he goes after girls when he hates their mothers, especially strong women and smart women. And he isn't sure if the case will hold up. Things were done wrong, he tells her. And when things go wrong, guilty men go free. And when guilty men go free, they sometimes look for revenge. And so 
my mom's like, okay, I'll listen to you. But she feels badly, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it takes a little over a year for Edward Coolidge to go to trial. And that finally happened in May 1965. He tells at least three different accounts of what happened the night Pamela died. He says he has four men who can vouch for his alibi, but none of them can. He says, yeah, that's my rifle. That rifle killed Pamela, but I got it in a contest in 1961, well after Sandra was murdered. And the prosecutor's like, buddy, you can have more than one rifle. Yeah. <laughs> and like back then there were no serial numbers on those. Yeah. Either now. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, back then there wasn't. Um, and so, you know, they don't know. Right. Can't track those 22s as well as they can, hopefully, now. So the jury convicts them, as we know. But back then in New Hampshire, there's no death penalty. And believe me, he would have probably gotten the death penalty right. because people were so upset about this case because Pamela was such an adorable kid, you know, and you don't murder kids. Um, and... They're like, back then, you could just get 18 years to life. So he gets life in prison. And in 1978, he applies for parole. And my mom irrationally panics, right? Um, because when she tells the story, she's just like, I know he's going to get out and he's going to kill me. But he is Why? So he didn't do anything. I know. But that's how paranoid my mom was about this whole thing. That's how scared she was. So um, he, even though he's, quote, an exemplary prisoner who's done college courses while in prison, his parole is denied. In 1982, he tries for parole again. 21,000 petitioners and a ton of politicians object. My mother is not publicly any of those objections, right? Mm -hmm. And according to New Hampshire Magazine, the parole board chairman, Richard Leonard, said, quote, that this man was the best risk I've seen out of 600 cases so like he thinks he's gonna come again basically right right but coolidge appeals that conviction again you know um and it's on the grounds that my uncle is terrified about like so it's not about paroling now it's about the appeals right and he does this according to what my uncle warned my mom about about the law and the appeal goes all the way to the u.s supreme court and he's released in 1991 in march right around my birthday and my mom's right yeah which is wild um before that trial some strange things happened to rena puckett um rena puckett is not my nana she's 47 years old so she's a little younger than my nana whose name was rena morris but her name, maiden name had been Philbrick, so they had the same initials at one point. Rena's farm is down Brown Ave in Manchester. And if you can remember the start of the podcast, my Nana, Rena, works in that same complex as my dad and the same place where the strange man talked to my mom, the complex right off of Brown Ave. Anyway, Rena Paquette starts telling everyone in her house that she knows who killed these girls. She tells her husband over and over, and he's just like, Rena, how do you know this? How can you possibly know this? And she tells him that the mother of the murderer told her. But she also says that someone with a French accent common in Manchester kept calling, and the family um, called this woman Mademoiselle, and allegedly Mademoiselle told Rena to check the pigsty for clues about Pamela's murder. 
So the Paquettes had a farm, right? Did they? And they raised pigs. Oh. So that's where the pigsty comes in. Right. So it's February now. Rena calls the police. Coolidge is not, you know, arrested yet. She tells whoever answers the phone that she knows who it was that killed Sandra and Pamela. She is positive. But the police never call back, according to some reports. According to others, the police followed every lead and none of them, like, worked or came through and she's just a pain in the neck. So, one morning, February 3rd, 1964, she just sort of disappears. Her son, Danny, he's ready for breakfast. He hauls himself down the stairs, but his mom isn't there. She isn't anywhere in the house, which is decidedly weird. So Danny calls his uncle, right? Mm-hmm. And the two of them start searching the farm. They're worried because it's really, really cold out and Rena's coat is still inside. Mm-hmm. They search and search for about an hour. And you can kind of imagine it. They just freezing cold. Maybe one of them's carrying Rena's coat for when they find her. They're calling out her name. But then they see smoke in a barn slash pig shack that's about a mile away from Rena and Danny's house, right? Mm-hmm. But it's part of the farm. Inside, so they run over there, right? Because it's on fire and it's part of the right. property and Rena's missing. So inside the barn is actually Rena's body and it's on fire. And she was wearing her nightgown and slippers, right? And her feet and her legs aren't burnt. Huh. And there's no container of liquid in the structure. Spontaneous combustion. <laughs> and there's no container of liquid in the structure or an ignition source, right? Mm-hmm. So the police come and they're like, this is a suicide. But they're like, that makes no sense to Danny or the rest of Rena's family and friends because her legs aren't burnt. And like, she wouldn't commit suicide. They're positive that she wouldn't because she, that, because they, she has to be dead by someone else's hand, they think, because, and they think it's because she knew who raped and kidnapped and killed, you know, Sandra and Pamela. Right. They're like, she's a devout Catholic. Suicide goes against her fate. She's been planning a second honeymoon trip. She is not going to kill herself. However, her priest said she was disur- disturbed about the Mason case, and the police chief said she was mentally unstable because she kept calling about it, right? Right. So her son, Victor, later told the reporters the only problem she had was her knowledge of the acts of Edward Coolidge. And she told that to too many people. Right. So if you think about the 60s, it wasn't like early 60s, a super progressive time for women. And I don't know if Rena Paquette knew for sure about who killed Edward. Right. But I can totally see a bunch of guys blowing her off. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, it's really sad. So, um, this is the big thing. The only way into that pigsty was barricaded from the outside with a couple of tree limbs. Okay. Those log braces held the door closed, and that was the only way in. Gotcha. But they said she committed suicide. Right. So you can't barricade yourself in from the outside. Exactly. Yeah. So Rena's brother, Woody Ferlin, even says later on um, that he talked to a state trooper who actually said, yeah, she was murdered. So six years later, they take they finally take Rena out of the ground and they change her cause of death to undetermined, which gave a little bit of peace to that poor family. I hope so. 
because that's just ridiculous. Like, that's how weird this case is, right? Mm -hmm. So, even going back to Edward, even life in prison back then meant 18 years, and then he could get paroled. And my uncle, again, was positive that this case wasn't tight enough and the conviction could be overturned. And even if it wasn't, you know, he could eventually do those 18 years and go out and go for revenge right he made this case was huge it made a huge impact on our law of our nation and on search warrants which you might know about because of your past time in law enforcement i don't know about coolers but i know about search warrants all right well we actually learned this case in uh high school in yeah. law class yeah um but new hampshire mag which is when my mom just spilled everything out about Everything that happened. Oh, that makes sense. Um, so anyways, New Hampshire Magazine writes, The case was appealed because the defendant argued that the state's attorney general issued a defective search warrant by approving it himself, not by an independent judge or a magistrate, a common practice in those days. So the attorney general's like, yeah, let's so search his stuff. I'll approve it. Um, but it's also his case, right? right? So it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, led then by John, F., um, John Fitzgerald, Kennedy's Solicitor General Archibald Cox, uh, who later was the Watergate Special Prosecutor, where in 1971 the conviction was overturned on a 5-4 to four decision. Justice Potter Stewart, who owned a, way in, a home in Sugar Hill, New Hampshire, wrote the opinion that threw out key evidence collected in the case because the search warrant wasn't valid. The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable search and seizures and requires probable cause. Most of the cases up to this point, um, with what constitutes probable cause, while most of them like, had a different take, the Coolidge case focused on who determines probable cause right. and whether that person is independent of the investigation right. so it ended the practice of search warrants being authorized by law enforcement officials who are not as Stewart noted quote neutral or detached from the investigation and couldn't fairly determine probable cause which is really interesting that it didn't used to be all the time like that you know Right. So the state's best evidence, like all the stuff they got from that, that um, the car, etc., the house, it's no longer admissible, right? Right. So Coolidge instead, so that, vic that is overturned. Right. And he pleads to second degree murder, which has a sentence of 19 to 24 years. And with good behavior, that's basically 10 years. Um, yeah, but we already know he was still in there in the 80s. Yeah, so New Hampshire Magazine quotes New Hampshire's former attorney general, but he should have been in there for life is the point. New he, Hampshire, wasn't, he wasn't? We no. don't know that he wasn't yet. Well, don't you think he probably should have? So yeah, New Hampshire I Magazine did. quotes New Hampshire former attorney general as saying back then, New Hampshire had a stable and really low prison population, hardly had any crime, and the fact that he, like, all of this happened... And they overturned the, you know, he's now second degree murder, right. no longer life. Everyone in New Hampshire is pretty much pissed off. Right. And the New Hampshire magazine sums it up well, saying, In 1983, the state adopted the so-called 
truth in sentencing law, which requires all defendants to serve at least the minimum of their sentence and adds 150 days of bad time to each year that can be erased by good time earned. The proponents hope that judges sentencing would reflect this added time by giving lighter sentences, but that never happened. One of the law's chief architects was Donna Sytek of Salem, who um, basically said judges didn't change their sentencing to meet the increase. And in 1992, Edward Coolidge serves his time and he gets out of jail. And my aunt and my uncle come to our house to talk my mom down, right? Um, there's nothing to worry about. You made the right choices. You were shrewd and you were smart, they said. Um, they tell her, your testimony wouldn't have helped the case now or before. You know, it's just circumstantial. Right. But her conscience always thought differently. You know, like part of her always thought, I should have done something. I was a wimp. And another part of her was like, oh, my God, I was so lucky. You know? Yeah. Even though she was older, but she looked young. Right. My mom was very young looking. And I think right then she was probably only, oh, God. She was pretty young. She was in her 20s. So it eventually, um, this legacy that he left, you know, he did a yeah. lot. Um, it turned out like the law changed and people changed and lives were devastated. You know, Pamela and Sandra's heck, whole, heck yeah. all their friends, all the cops, all their family. That's all, right. And even the peripheral people lived in fear, you know? Yeah. Um, and according to Nancy West in a New Hampshire Sunday News article, 20 years after he was out of jail in 2011, he said he was innocent and he is still living in Virginia. Huh. I don't think he was innocent at all, though. Because you know why? Why? Because as soon as you said the story way back when about the baker truck driver, I knew it was the, that he was the guy. Mm. No, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm wondering It's what... like returning to the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. He knew the stuff was there the whole time. Yeah. But when the snow melted and he saw it as he was driving by, he's like, oh, man. And he just couldn't help himself. No, that wasn't him. He wasn't the bakery. Bull crap. I bet you it was. Oh, that would be weird. Anyway. Have you read that it was a different baker truck driver? No. No, you haven't, have you? So he used to live on Clay Street, random note. Yeah. Which is pretty close to the Elliott Hospital, which is right near where my Nana lived. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. So what do you think the connection is there? You've said this about your Nana and your mom, but you haven't made any sort of connection. Because my... your mom doesn't fit the profile of a woman he would have been interested in at the time because of her age. No, she was a little too old. Right. Right. So he thought, like, the, the theories in my family, which are just my family, are a couple my family, and I don't know because I didn't see this in any police report. Yeah. But, um, and my fa all my family members are dead. My mom, my nana, my dad. Right. Um, but they truly believe that he went after girls who had moms that were very strong women. Yeah. Who had opinions and who were smart. So how did he come in contact with these moms? Well, that's really the question. He worked at least part of the time in that same industrial complex that my Nana did. Well, what about and Pamela my... and, and the other girl's mom? 
those. Well, if he was if he was a Coca Cola driver and a bakery truck driver, right? Yeah. You could see I don't um him going to an inn that served food, which is where True that. Yeah. Um, Sandra's bakery, mom probably, I mean Pamela's mom did. And yeah. I don't know what Sandra's mom did. Um, and I honestly don't know if that's true or not. No. And no. you know, when he was looking for if he did kill Rena Pocket, which has never been proven because mm-hmm. it's never even been proven that she's being murdered. Um, they also thought that he could have been looking for Arena on Brown Ave, right? And assumed it was my nana, and then went after my mom. Would have gone after my mom for um, revenge or to shut her up. That was their theory. Like, those were the theories. I don't yeah. know if it's true, obviously, and you obviously don't think so. No, I just don't know what your Nana has to do with him. Honestly. Her name is the same. Right. As the but, lady who was like, I know who did it. Connect? I know who did it. Oh. And they're both on Brown Ave. Because... Well, their initials are the same. Their first name is the same, which does not seem like a common name, honestly. No, it's so. not a common name. So. I could see the confusion. Yeah. Like, I've known three Renas in my whole life. And, um, you know, it's obvious. No, no woman would kill themselves in their nightgown. And a pigsty. I mean, leave the house and go a mile away to the pigsty and then set themselves on fire? No. Well, no one sets themselves on fire and doesn't get their legs. <laughs> well, who? And there was no lighter. There was no accelerant in right. the freaking place. Like, like, for her to have done it to herself. Right. Like, right. hay can spontaneously combust, but do pigs even eat hay? Oh, I don't think the pig's die was probably full of hay, no. no. And then why were the doors blocked from outside? the outside? Right. Obviously. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's really very, very interesting. And sad. It's so sad. Like, her death, you know, she had a pretty big family. And yeah. they, you know, not only did they have to deal with their mom dying suddenly, they had to deal with, um... She's a devout Catholic who the cops are saying killed herself, which made no right. sense to them. Well, he probably should have been convicted of that one, too. It was just sad. It is sad. Yeah. It's all sad, baby, when you talk about murder and stuff. Yeah, and that's my that's my mom's and my uncle's role in the whole thing. <laughs> which is really nothing, because they never went to the police. So. No, they never went to the police, but she, you know, she... Went to her grave, dying of something very different, um, absolutely believing that that was who knocked on her car window. So what? Uh, and she freaked the hell out. No, I understand all lied. that. But I mean, there's nothing that she, she would have provided nothing to the investigation. No, but she feels like she could have died. Like she well, could have been his next victim. Or, who knows? Yeah, like she was very, very scared. I don't think you ever okay. said what your mother did when he knocked on her window, though. Oh, really? Yeah, really. She lied and said that she was waiting for her husband. Oh, you didn't say anything that the guy ever spoke to her. Oh, yeah, he spoke to the her. The way you, we laid it out in the oh, podcast. Oh, I'm so sorry that like, I didn't tell no, the no, whole no. story. Like, but, in my yeah. mind, she freaking put the car in drive and peeled out, you know what I mean? No. Like, I'm getting out of here. So she, they actually spoke. Yeah, she she said it, it was freezing out, and she was trying to get the car to warm up, so she was sitting in the parking lot, because she sometimes, and eventually worked at the but same place that my nana But what was she really did. doing there? Picking That's up your dad, right? No. No? She oh. was actually working. Oh, uh, was she on break or something? She was, she was ripping a butt, wasn't she, in the car? 
Mar- Marlboros. Marlboro, light 100s, yes. No, and, they weren't and, lights back then, baby. <laughs> she was doing the reds. And no, she wasn't. Oh, yeah. Not that my was mama. All, she didn't smoke lights fine until you were born. Anyways, she said that she, um, she was out there trying to warm the car up, actually. She probably was, so she could smoke a cigarette. And she was, but but she was smart enough to say, "Hey, there's a man coming." Yeah, or expecting yeah, like to be here for her, her like survival instinct just right. went boom right on. Yep, which is pretty cool, you know. That it she is. did, mm-hmm. but she said it was very. She said he creeped her out in like intensely, like. Well, that's good that she got the feeling and listened to it. Yeah, she was so smart about that kind of stuff. Go listen to your instinct. Unlike me. Or I just think everyone's good. Pretty much. Yeah. I know. You had to run a bad luck until me, baby. <laughs> you finally got it right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Anyways, stay safe. And, yeah. Uh, we have a, our podcast next week, actually, Shawnee. You don't know this. No, I don't know shit about them before they come. And everybody else is that it's actually more about the podcast family. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Because... Although some other things happened to them. Oh no, the poor family. Yeah, it's they had a hard time. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> it does suck. So thank you for listening. Please stay safe and tell your friends to like and subscribe. And share. And share. You share. You share. Tell your, you should like and subscribe and tell your friends to listen. Everything's on you. The burden's on you. The listen. <laughs> it's all on you. Because <laughs> we can't market. it. <laughs> <laughs> we're too poor to buy ads. The end. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Hey, thank you for listening to Dude No. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And tell all your friends what a goofy couple has this podcast and how good it is to listen to. (laughs) Be Be kind. Be kind. Yes. Thank you.